Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. <gasps> it is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover gruesome and disturbing crimes. I'm your host, Chris. Today's episode is a story of human trafficking, prostitution, rape, and torture. The human trafficking industry is thought to be the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, second to the drug trade. Human trafficking can take many forms and might involve runaways, groups, immigrants, or in this case an individual. Human trafficking is defined by antislavery.org as the process of trapping people through the use of violence, deception or coercion, and exploiting them for financial or personal gain. The United States Department of Justice defines human trafficking as a crime that involves exploiting a person for labor, services, or commercial sex. In this story, a young woman finds herself caught in a violently abusive situation. The man she thought she was entering into a romantic relationship with instead forces her into prostitution and subjects her to ongoing violence, rape, torture, and death threats. Unfortunately, this type of crime is not uncommon, and as much as we would like to believe it doesn't happen in beautiful places, that would be wrong. Because even here, in the great Pacific Northwest, in the beautiful Puget Sound, we see the worst of the worst. The Puget Sound is an inlet of the Pacific Ocean in Washington State. It includes many counties, including King County, Snohomish County, and Kitsap County. All of these are surrounded by water, mountains, and evergreen forests, and contain thousands of acres of parkland. This case first came to my attention when my sister was called for jury duty at the Kitsap County Superior Courthouse in Port Orchard, Washington, back in 2018. Of course, she couldn't talk about it until after the trial was over, so naturally I was dying of curiosity. As it turns out, she ended up serving as the jury foreman, which can be a very tough job. So when I decided to start my own podcast, I knew I wanted to do this case. I made my sister sit down and tell me everything. She even took me on a crime scene tour so I could get a visual of the different locations where these crimes occurred. My family's been in Kitsap County for at least 40 years. We had all moved to Kitsap County from the Seattle-Tacoma area. When we first moved here, nobody even knew where it was. I lived and worked in Kitsap County for many years, although I've since moved. I still have a lot of family living there, and I go back to visit several times a year. It's grown quite a bit over the years, but it still has that small-town feel. This story begins in Snohomish County, which is considered part of the Seattle metropolitan area. Seattle is famous for many reasons. Seattle is Washington State's largest city. It's home to a large tech industry with Microsoft and Amazon headquartered in its metropolitan area. It's also known for the movie Sleepless in Seattle, the world-famous iconic Space Needle, Pike Street Market, Gary Ridgway, the Green River serial killer, Ted Bundy, the serial killer, 
and of course Anne Rule, the former Seattle police officer who wrote many true crime novels, including The Stranger Beside Me, which is about her time working with Ted Bundy in Seattle. Snohomish County is just a few miles north of Seattle, right up the road on I-5. It has a number of cities, including Marysville, Everett, Kirkland, and Lake Stevens. These cities are within just a few short miles of each other and about 15 to 20 miles north of Seattle, which is in King County. King County has a larger number of cities, including Seattle, Kent, Renton, and SeaTac, where the Seattle International Airport resides. Both King County and Snohomish County are right across the Puget Sound from Kitsap County. Kitsap County includes Bremerton, Silverdale, and Port Orchard. Port Orchard is where the Kitsap County Superior Court is located. A lot of people live in Kitsap County, but take the ferry over to King or Snohomish counties to work. The cost of living in or near Seattle is astronomical, and the ferries are fairly fast and cheap by comparison. It takes about 30 minutes or 60 minutes to cross the Puget Sound, depending on which ferry you take and where you depart from. You can drive around, but it will take about an hour and a half or longer, depending on traffic. And the traffic on I-5 is terrible. It seems like there has been a major freeway construction project going on for the last 10 years. Kitsap County is deceptively peaceful and picturesque. It has a population of approximately 271,000. It's located on the west coast of Washington State in one of the harbors of the Puget Sound. It's known as the gateway to the Olympic Peninsula. Mount Rainier, with its snow-covered peak, can be seen on a clear day, looking very grand on the horizon. Kitsap County is home to the port of Bremerton Marina, which houses 220 slips for permanent and visiting boaters, has several championship golf courses, and it has the best equipped Navy Yard in the United States. The Puget Sound Naval Shipyard and Kitsap Naval Base house the aircraft carriers and nuclear subs of the United States Navy, which come and go throughout the year for repairs and overhauls. I have family that work in the shipyard. The Bremerton Annex of Naval Base Kitsap is where many of the Navy personnel and their families live and work. I go there whenever I visit my dad, who is retired military. He takes me to the commissary and package exchange, or PX, to shop on the base. The PX is a lot like an upscale department store these days, not like when I was a kid, and it more closely resembled a Kmart. Kitsap County is considered a great place to live with its beautiful views, waterfront properties, and close proximity to the Olympic Mountains. Just north of Kitsap County, up the Olympic Peninsula, is the town Port Townsend, where the movie Officer and a Gentleman was filmed, and a little further north is the town Forks, where scenes from the vampire series Twilight was filmed. In stark contrast to this idyllic visual are the numbers from the FBI crime data study. In 2014, Bremerton was the 10th most dangerous city in Washington state, tying with its next door neighbor, Port Orchard. It has improved a little since then, but in 2016, when these crimes occurred, it had not improved all that much, although it was no longer in 10th place. Jeremy Blaine Fenny is an individual who brings those FBI crime data numbers to life. 
on November 22, 2016, at 5.49 a.m., at the young age of 28, Fenny was booked into the Kitsap County Jail in Port Orchard, Washington, on 45 felony counts, many classified as having lack of remorse and deliberate cruelty. Some of these counts have multiple charges. Here's the summarized list. Human trafficking, promoting prostitution, assault, rape, felony harassment, threat to kill, unlawful imprisonment, kidnapping, unlawful possession of a firearm, possession of methamphetamine, felony violation of a court order, witness tampering, possession of a stolen firearm, attempted murder and robbery. These crimes and these people don't exist in a vacuum, but to a certain extent they are invisible. If you're a person who does not travel in the same circles as they do, then you'll probably have no idea what's happening right next door. That's partly what fascinates me about this case. In order to protect their privacy, I will use pseudonyms instead of actual names for both of the female victims in this case. I will refer to them as Jane and Kelly. I don't think names are needed in this situation to understand the brutality and severity of the crimes which were committed by Fenny. What is important is to realize that people like them in these situations are much too common. Very little information regarding the history and background of the people involved in this case is available publicly. What little I was able to find on Fenny and Jane was cobbled together using a variety of court documents. I reconstructed the timeline and events of this case using the opening and closing statements of the actual trial transcripts a multitude of other miscellaneous court documents, including appeal briefs and news articles. Based on that, let's take a look at the events that led to the incarceration and eventual conviction of Jeremy Blaine Fenny. Jeremy Blaine Fenny was born on January 13, 1988. He has a ninth grade education by his own admission on an unrelated arrest form. His mother, who was living in Marysville, Washington, just north of Seattle during 2016, stated in her court testimony in 2018 that Jeremy was convicted and incarcerated of his first crime when he was just 16 years old and tried as an adult. This would have been around 2004. He's been in and out of prison ever since. His last two stints in prison were for assault, burglary, and illegal possession of a firearm once in 2008 and again in 2012. Fenny was also a self-proclaimed member of the gang Black Gangsta Disciples. Fenny was married in 2007 and had a child. According to the dissolution of marriage document, he and his ex-wife stopped living together around 2010. The marriage was officially dissolved in March of 2018. Over the years, his now ex-wife had her own encounters with law enforcement and did spend some time in jail. They may have lost custody of their child due to the fact that they were both incarcerated at the same time. It doesn't appear that this was a concern to Fenny. It also doesn't appear that he and his estranged wife had any contact after his last release from prison. Fenny's 2008 conviction at the age of 20 was for residential burglary. 
He was officially charged with first-degree robbery and attempted first-degree robbery with a deadly weapon. He was sentenced to 33 months in prison. His 2012 conviction at the age of 23 was for third-degree assault and illegal possession of a firearm. He was sentenced to 35 months in prison and 12 months of community custody supervised work release. Jeremy's mother was active in his life throughout 2016. She provided him with money when needed and a place to stay, even if it meant sleeping on her living room floor. In fact, upon his release from prison, according to the conditions of his parole, he was supposed to be staying with his mother. She also supported him while he was in jail awaiting trial, and she supported him throughout his trial. Based on phone calls made in jail, his mother was even willing to help her son by violating the no-contact order. She would do this by pressuring and manipulating Jane, his ex-girlfriend and victim, into having more contact with Fenny. The goal being to convince her not to testify against Fenny or to change her testimony. Of course, his mother denied this. He also has an aunt who testified on his behalf at the trial. I mention this because as despicable as this guy was, and as appalling as his track record was, he still had family who cared for him and loved him. When Fenny's mother testified in court for her son in 2018, she stated that her son was a victim of a corrupt criminal justice system and said that he did not have a fair or effective counsel. She stated, Jeremy was locked away and tried as an adult at 16. There's been no rehabilitation involved, just an instant label that he has had to live with and carry around as judgment for the rest of his life. So this life sentence is really nothing. He's already lived in hell. Fenny is a black male and a big guy by any standards at six feet tall, 220 pounds. He has several tattoos on his body which reflect his lifestyle and he's very proud of them. He sings and talks about things related to his criminal lifestyle. He has even made a YouTube video which depicts him rapping about hoes. The lyrics are about how Jane was bringing him money. I am just sitting up here with my hoe. I am looking at this bitch right now telling her, why don't you get me some dough? Here is an excerpt of Fenny's YouTube rap song. The quality of the original recording is very poor and it didn't improve with my recording, so I apologize for that. But I thought it would be interesting to hear regardless. Jane was born on April 9, 1992. At the time these events took place in 2016, she was turning 24 years old. She had at least two children at the time, one daughter born in 2013, and a son who was starting first grade in the fall of 2016. She had no children with Fenny. Despite Jane's lifestyle at the time, she was still close to her parents. They supported her as best they could throughout 2016. Jane still called her mom when she was in trouble, and her mother tried to come to her aid on a number of occasions, as noted in court documents. Her mom tried to stay in contact with Jane, even though it was very difficult under the circumstances. Her mom tried very hard to be there for her, especially 
knowing that Fenny was abusing her daughter and knowing that she was using drugs. Her parents supported her for the duration of Fenny's trial. Her parents loved her. They worried about her. They feared for her safety, and they did what they could to help her, even though she did not make it easy for them. They also cared for her children when she was not in a position to care for them herself due to her current living situation. Clearly, Jane had her issues, but no matter what, she did not deserve the treatment she received from the man she thought she loved. Benny is released from his most recent prison stint into the custody of his mother. She is living in Marysville, which is in Snohomish County. He has some friends in the area, and this is where he met Jane, his future girlfriend, or victim. Fenny and Jane originally met in 2011 through mutual friends on Facebook. I mean, who doesn't these days? They dated briefly during this time when Jane was about 18 years old. During the same period of time, Fenny was arrested again and convicted on an unrelated matter, and he spent the next several years in prison as a result. Jane, being a young single woman, went on with her life. She had relationships with other men and even had a couple of kids. And despite her relationships with other men, having two children, and Fenny being in prison, they still managed to remain in contact with each other. Unfortunately, Jane was also using meth at this time, and she was in no position to care for her kids. Luckily, her parents managed to gain temporary custody of the children. In 2012, Fenny had been sentenced to 35 months in prison. He was convicted of assaulting a woman and illegal use of a firearm. When it became closer to the time Fenny was due to be released, around September of 2015, he was put on work release. This made it very easy for him to have contact with Jane. While Fenny was out on work release, he would call Jane and they would meet at the home of one of her friends, or she would visit him at his mom's house in Marysville. Upon his release, and according to the conditions of his parole, he was only permitted to stay with his mom in Marysville. He was not supposed to stay or live anywhere else. This meant he could not stay in a hotel, he could not stay the night at a friend's house, or he would be in violation of his parole. Of course, Fenny didn't follow the conditions of his parole, and soon he became involved with another woman and began living with her in Marysville. Since he was not working and had no income, this new woman he was living with and his mother are basically supporting him, providing him both with money and a place to live. About a month into his release and while he was still living with this other woman, Fenny and Jane began to date again. As Fenny and Jane became reacquainted with each other, they began to spend more and more time together. Jane was really starting to like Fenny and began to think of him as her boyfriend. Well, this is just the beginning of a downward spiral into hell. The following statements and summary by the prosecuting attorney will set the stage for what comes next. Here is an excerpt of the opening statement made by Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Emily Goodell. Quote, Thank you, Your Honor. Famous poets and playwright Oscar Wilde is credited with saying, Everything in the world is about sex except for sex. Sex is about power. No words could better describe the reality of the life that Jane was living in 2016. You have heard 
The first two counts are human trafficking and promoting prostitution. If you're picturing people crammed into a cell or hiding in the back of a truck, you might be surprised to learn that the legal definition encompasses more. If you are picturing scantily clad women making fortunes, happily advertising themselves walking the streets, you might be surprised to learn that in reality that is not how prostitution operates in our communities. Many people don't encounter this on a daily basis and may therefore be unfamiliar with what modern day prostitution, trafficking, and pimping looks like. End quote. Before we continue with our story, let's review Ms. Goodell's summary of the testimony by the first witness called to testify for the prosecution. The purpose of having him testify up front was to provide the jury a brief education and or foundation to help them understand a world that seems incomprehensible. His name is Maurice Washington, a Seattle Police Department detective cross-commissioned as an FBI task force agent with 15 years of experience investigating these types of crimes in our communities. Detective Washington is trained in the field of human trafficking or promoting prostitution. He testified, it's an understatement to say it's a subculture because on the criminal side of it, it probably pulls in somewhere around $55.5 billion per year. The only thing underneath that is narcotics and gun sales, and then narcotic and gun sale totals don't bring in the amount of money that is being brought in through human trafficking. He stated that most women working as prostitutes has or have had a pimp or trafficker that is involved. In his court testimony, he explained that pimping is about power and the exercise of that power for the profit of the pimp. He explained that what is commonly referred to as the game is the pattern by which girls are targeted, tricked, and turned out. He explained what those terms mean and what it looks like, what aspects of the game are specifically designed to protect the pimp and to keep the victims from reporting the atrocities that are committed against them. Mr. Washington talked about how this operates, how prostitution operates, finesse pimps, guerrilla pimps, and things that pimps do to get women to comply, about how prostitution works in general and in his experience. Washington described a pimp as a master manipulator. He said, you see everything from the finesse pimp to the guerrilla pimp, but it is basically a sliding scale that goes from a person that has a gift of gab, so to speak, and can talk anyone into anything to the gorilla pimp who uses physical violence and force to get the girl to do what they want. And so if they need to be more violent to get them under control, they will be more violent. If they need to be more of this person that talks a lot, they will be down along that side. He said many pimps first entered a romantic relationship to recruit someone to work as a prostitute. He added, most victims that are in this prostitution subculture will not tell you that they are a victim. They will tell you that they are doing this because they want to do it. And they are not looking or focusing on that lens of that the person is actually controlling and pulling those strings, that they actually have been duped and tricked into doing something that no other person would want to do. 
Basically, it's modern-day slavery. And, you know, on the base of it, no one would want to do that. No one would want to give up their freedom so that this other person can make money from it. When asked why prostitutes do not report abuse to law enforcement, he referred to a trauma bond between the pimp and the prostitute. According to Wikipedia, traumatic bonding occurs as the result of ongoing cycles of abuse in which the intermittent reinforcement of reward and punishment creates powerful emotional bonds that are resistant to change. Patrick Carnes developed the term to describe the misuse of fear, excitement, sexual feelings, and sexual physiology to entangle another person. A simpler and more encompassing definition is that traumatic bonding is a strong emotional attachment between an abused person and his or her abuser, formed as a result of the cycle of violence. I will leave it to you as it was left to the jury to draw your own conclusion regarding this testimony. Let's get back to the story. As it happens, one night in February 2016, Fenny and Jane were watching the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, based on the true story of Jordan Belfort. The premise of this movie is about an average guy named Jordan Belfort who opens his own brokerage firm. Belfort makes a huge fortune by defrauding wealthy investors out of millions, becomes the Wolf of Wall Street, and creates an empire of excess. There are outrageous scenes that include women engaged in sex and prostitution, and everyone is using massive amounts of drugs. I wouldn't be surprised if Fenny imagines himself to be like Leonardo as the wolf. Fenny uses this movie as his segue to broach the subject of prostitution with Jane. According to Jane, Fenny tells her that she would only have to do this for six months. He says, They will take some trips, they will save up some money, and then they will have a good, happy life together. Because Jane is really beginning to like him and think of Fenny as her boyfriend, she believes him. He also tells her that if she does this, he will be able to end his relationship with the woman he is currently living with, who is supporting him, and they can be together full time. He knew Jane cared about him, that she was falling in love with him, and he used this knowledge to his advantage and convinced her that he cared for her too. Jane was falling for Fenny, even though she knew he was a pimp. She knew he was a pimp because he had several tattoos, including one he was especially proud of on his chest. True Northwest Pimp. He also claimed that he and his friends were in a gang, and she had no reason not to believe him. Now that Jane has agreed to the idea of prostitution, Fenny ends his relationship with the woman he has been living with. He doesn't need her anymore. He has a new source of income. They immediately began posting ads on the internet offering sex for money. These ads were placed on websites like Backpage.com, which were commonly used for this type of business transaction at the time. Jane began taking calls, and Fenny would actually accompany her to those calls. This is while they were still in Snohomish County. In the very beginning, when Jane first started working, she stated, things were fairly calm. According to Jane, when she first started out, she was earning a significant amount of money. She was charging $200 a visit, and for a good day, going on six or seven calls. 
She would turn over all the money she earned to Fenny, thinking he was saving it for their future. She honestly believed this was a we thing, as she put it. But it only took a few weeks for Jane to discover this was not a we thing, and there was no end in sight. According to Fenny, they shared in the profits. According to Jane, all the money would go to Fenny. Fenny would spend it on new clothes and shoes for himself, drugs, and whatever else he wanted. Occasionally, Jane tried to keep some cash for herself, but if Fenny found out, he would just take it from her. He would oftentimes dump out her purse to check for money, just to make sure she wasn't holding back. She had to ask him for permission to make any purchases. Controlling the purse strings is just another method he used to control her. Jane also found out the hard way that taking calls was definitely not optional. If she did try to quit taking calls by not posting ads, Fenny would very quickly turn on her with violence and abuse. This only escalated as time went on. If Fenny thought she hadn't posted her ad, he would not hesitate to beat her. He would tell her if she did not get a call in the next 15 minutes, he would kill her. Clearly, the beatings and the threats to her life were not typical of a healthy, loving relationship of any kind. Even though Fenny would sometimes tell her that she was free to go, if she did try to leave, he would stop her and beat her. Oftentimes he would hit her with his gun, but at a minimum he would slap her and punch her. Sometimes he would punch her so hard he would knock her out. Inevitably, the question of why didn't you leave or why don't they leave comes up. Kitsap's sons Andrew Binion reported the following, the woman in this article being Jane. Quote, she said the worst abuse was usually brought on by jealousy and Fenny's obsession with controlling her. She was forbidden from speaking to anyone, especially men, and had to look at the ground. The woman said, Multiple people knew of or witnessed the extreme abuse, but never intervened or called the police. Nobody ever did anything, the woman said. The abuse was so openly known that another person in Fenny's social circle, a woman, once asked the alleged victim if tricks minded paying her for sex given she had so many visible injuries on her body. Deputy Prosecutor Corrine Schnempf asked why she didn't simply leave. That's a good question, the woman said. The woman described herself as brainwashed and high on hard drugs, believing that she loved and was dependent on Fenny. She also noted that Fenny said he was in a street gang, and she feared what his associates would do to her. They are not good people. They are scary. Although she would try to leave, she said Fenny would apologize and cry, and less than 24 hours later, she would return, only to have him assault her again and threaten to kill her, her family, friends, and children. He referred to her only as the B-word, she said. He broke me down to the point that I didn't think I could survive without him because he made me feel so dependent on him and stupid and nobody would want me, she said. Also noting, I pretty much forgot what my name was for a long time because I wasn't called by my name. End quote. 
Jane was now using meth on a daily basis. Since Fenny did not allow Jane to talk to anyone or have any money, he was obviously the one supplying the drugs for her. Although Fenny is a meth user himself, this is still just another tool in Fenny's belt to control Jane. By the time Easter came around, their relationship was completely transformed. Even though Jane still held out hope and still cared for him, their relationship was definitely not the one she had envisioned. Based on her journal entries, which were shared in court, she wanted to do the things couples do, like holding hands, making love, walking on the beach. But in reality, the real violence is only just beginning. On March 28th or 29th of 2016, Jane and Fenny had been using meth together steadily, so obviously they were very high. Meth is a super powerful stimulant, even in small doses. It can increase wakefulness and physical activity and decrease appetite. It produces a euphoria, the pleasurable high, which is highly addictive. This means that they are potentially up for days at a time getting high. With no food, no sleep, and continuous drug use, they are in bad shape. And this is often called tweaking. Tolerance to meth's pleasurable effects develop when it is taken repeatedly. Abusers often need to take higher and higher doses of the drug, take it more frequently, or change how they take it in an effort to get the desired effect. Long-term users may exhibit symptoms that can include paranoia, visual and auditory hallucinations, significant anxiety, confusion, insomnia, mood disturbances, and violent behavior. So the bottom line is that both Jane and Fenny are hardcore long-term meth users and obviously this affects their lifestyle, decision-making, state of mind, and mental and physical health. Nothing and nobody takes priority over your next meth fix. Even your loved ones are not safe from your destructive behavior. I wanted to talk about the meth use, not because it is an excuse, because it most certainly is not, but it can help to explain some of the behavior. With that said, let's get back to the story. Benny actually had a road trip planned. He wanted to go down south towards Oregon and California. He even rented a car. But prior to the trip, he went on a shopping spree, buying clothes and shoes for himself. Well, this shopping spree left them short of funds for his big road trip. Even though he was the one who spent the money, he still blamed Jane for their lack of funds. And he became extremely angry and agitated with her. When Fenny realized he didn't have enough money to make his road trip, he was still at his mom's house, so he hadn't gotten very far at all. He announced to Jane that he was going to leave his mom's house and head out, alone. As a result, Jane stated she was going to head out too. Jane started towards her car to leave. Well, Fenny didn't like that. She's not allowed to make any decisions on her own. She isn't the one that leaves. He's the one that leaves. He grabbed her by the coat and threw her against the car and told her she wasn't going anywhere. Because it was still early in their relationship, Jane still had enough strength to muster up the courage and defy him. She got into her car and tried to leave anyway. This really pissed Fenny off and he yanked her right back out of that car. Just then, Fenny's mom came home. 
so they all went inside her house. He told Jane to thank her lucky stars that his mom came home when she did, because otherwise he would have killed her. Since he still had the rental car, he decided they would go to a friend's house in Bremerton instead of taking their big road trip. It's not clear if they took the ferry or drove around. If they drove around, it would have been about an hour and a half drive. If they took the ferry, it would have taken about the same amount of time, but the bulk of the trip would have been sitting on the ferry. They stayed in Bremerton and had Easter brunch and then returned to Marysville. Under these conditions, knowing they were very high on meth and Fenny being so mean and violent, it's hard to imagine him in an Easter brunch anywhere. That evening, they made their way back to the Seattle side of the water, where Jane went out on a call in a city called Kirkland and another one in Lake Stevens. Fenny accompanied her to both of these calls. When she got back in the car after her call in Lake Stevens, Fenny was super agitated. Jane was driving and Fenny just lost it. He began punching her and hitting her. In fact, he hit her so hard he knocked her glasses off. For some reason, he kept talking about her phone, but she didn't understand why. Apparently, he had used it to go through her Facebook messages and found some that he thought made him look bad. It seems Jane was telling someone that she was thinking about leaving Fenny and was going to blow him off. That could absolutely not be tolerated. Nobody makes Fenny look bad, especially not Jane. Not without consequences. She had to be taught a lesson so he began hitting her with his gun as she drove. This is a great, big, heavy, semi-automatic handgun. How she can still drive while he is bashing her with a gun is hard to imagine. He directed her to drive them to Forest Park in Everett. While they were driving, Jane was having a hard time because she couldn't see very well without her glasses. In the middle of all this chaos, Fenny dropped her phone and it slipped under the car seat. Even though he's the one who dropped the phone, he continues to accuse Jane of hiding her phone from him, yelling, Bitch, stop trying to hide the phone. Give me the fucking phone. He did eventually find it on his own. When they arrived at Forest Park, it was about 1 a.m. in the morning, so the park is deserted. He pulled her out of the car and walked her through the park with a gun to her head. This is a public park, where families come with a lake and picnic tables. And as they were walking through the park, he continued with his threats to kill her. He guided her way off the beaten path and deep into a wooded area. He turned her around to face him and he forced her to look down the barrel of his gun while he pointed it in her face. Suddenly, he just stopped, turned around and directed her to walk back to the car. He told her the only reason he didn't kill her right then was because he didn't want some kid to find her dead body in the morning. At this point, they needed to find a place to crash for the night. According to Jane, Fenny was freaking out because they were both high on meth and he was scared his mom would find out if they went back to her place. But according to the conditions of his parole, the only place he was permitted to stay legally was at his mom's. It's hard to understand why he cared about what his mom thought, but apparently he did. I don't get the impression that she would have turned him in. So rather than face having his mom discover they were high on meth, they left Forest Park and drove to a motel where they could stay the night instead. 
The first motel they stopped at was Motel 6, but the front desk clerk wouldn't let them check in without seeing Fenny's driver's license or ID. This made Fenny extremely paranoid and scared because he didn't want his parole officer to find out. They decided to try the Days Inn instead, which is about five miles from Forest Park. Jane went into the motel lobby on her own to get them checked into a room. Based on her physical condition, with the obvious injuries to her face from the beating she had just received from Fenny, with his gun and fists, the clerk was concerned enough to ask her if she was okay. Jane made an excuse for her appearance, saying she was in a bar fight, and the front desk clerk didn't pursue it. If the police had been called and Fenny was confronted by the police, he most likely would have been put back in prison for violating his parole. But that didn't happen, and they were allowed to check in. While she was inside the motel office, Jane called Fenny's mom twice. She wanted to ask her if she would please call her son home because she was afraid to be alone with him. Fenny's mom didn't answer the phone, so she texted a friend and told her everything. She wanted someone to know where she was and what had happened. She didn't want Fenny to see the text, so she deleted them prior to leaving the lobby. She met up with Fenny outside and they headed up to the room, which was on the second floor of the motel. As they started walking up the steps, Fenny began repeatedly punching her in the face and arms. During this assault, Jane attempted to protect herself. She fell into a corner from the pain and tried to avoid the blows and started screaming. This really pissed Fenny off and he said, Oh, bitch, you want to make some noise? Get the fuck in the room. Once inside their room, he ordered her to strip naked while he held the gun in his hand. He continued to rain blows down on her, punching her body all over, and then he proceeded to force himself on her sexually and raped her anally. After the rape, they both fell asleep on the bed. They did not wake up until housekeeping came knocking on their door because it was well past checkout time. After checking out of the motel, Jane drove Fenny to his mom's house. While at his mom's place, a friend of Jane's had texted asking if Jane would give her a ride to a doctor's appointment. Now that he had brutally beaten and raped her and taught her the lesson of his power over her, he allowed her to leave. So she left in her car to go visit her friend and give her a ride. After this particularly vicious assault, violence became an everyday occurrence. As Jane drove to go visit her friend, she saw her parents on the road in their car and they all pulled over. Jane's mom was so freaked out by her daughter's appearance that she called the police. The police arrived to their location where they had all pulled over, but Jane asked her mother to please let her handle it on her own and refused to disclose any information to the police officer. When Jane looked back at this incident, even though she acknowledged that she had the chance to leave Fenny that day, she admits that she did not want help or police involvement. The obvious question we're all asking is why? The testimony we reviewed earlier by Maurice Washington tried to help shed some light on the subject. Within a week or two of the Days Inn incident, Jane and Fenny moved over to Kitsap County. They moved into a home on Silver Street in Silverdale, where a number of acquaintances passed through or lived over the months in which they occupied the place. According to my sister, they referred to this as the Dirt Road House 
throughout the trial. This is because Silver Street starts out as a paved road but turns into a dirt road at the end where the house is located. If you drive around from Snohomish County instead of taking the ferry, you will drive along the inlet of Highway 16 as you enter Kitsap County. The drive will rapidly decrease in elevation until you are driving at eye level with sea level. You will drive by Port Orchard, through Bremerton, and then on into Silverdale. On a nice day, the sun will be sparkling off the water, sailboats can be seen cruising the harbor, and people can be seen walking along the beaches. If you take the ferry, it will pull right into busy downtown Bremerton where cars and pedestrians will disembark. Silverdale is the location of the Dirt Road House, and for those of you who know this area, you can visualize pulling into the bustling parking lot of the local Super Safeway on Buckland Hill Road. Just a few blocks up the road, you will drive past the parking lot of the neighboring Church of Latter-day Saints, right off Nels Nelson Road. In the same immediate area is Harrison Hospital, just a mile or so from the Dirt Road House. It's been renamed to St. Michael's since then. Just a little further up the road in East Bremerton is Wheaton Way, a main thoroughfare where the Midway Inn is located. The house Fenny lived in, this dirt road house, is surrounded by these locations, separated by no more than a couple of miles. The house is buried in a small, innocuous-looking neighborhood. Kitty pools in the yard, toys scattered about, barbecues standing off porches, and yards not well-maintained. Just a few streets down from the dirt road house is where many of the prominent residents of Silverdale live, including doctors and attorneys. Their upscale houses overlook the water along with trendy waterfront restaurants, shops, and businesses. These two worlds and neighborhoods couldn't be more different. The crimes and events in this story took place in those locations. They stayed at the Dirt Road House until they were both arrested on November 22, 2016. Jane and others at the house used meth here regularly. Jane continued to engage in prostitution after they moved to Silverdale, but Fenny no longer went on calls with her like he did in Snohomish County. He was too well known by police in Kitsap County and did not want to be recognized. Instead, she drove alone to go meet her clients. Jane usually gave Fenny the money she made when she returned from a call, but she still tried to keep some money for herself every once in a while, usually without success. Jane reported between March and November of 2016, there were times when Fenny actually said he did not want her to prostitute herself, but she continued to work anyway. But she knew all too well if she tried to stop working or did not get enough calls, he would beat her or threaten to kill her. Also, Fenny never did have a job between February and November of 2016. His sole source of income was the money Jane made through prostitution. He wasn't looking for a job. He had no intention of looking for a job, nor did he want Jane to do anything but prostitute. Fenny also told Jane he was part of a gang, the GD folks, Black Gangsta Disciples. He also claimed two of his close friends Johnson and Cornegay were also members. Cornegay and his then-girlfriend Kelly eventually moved into the Dirt Road house with Fenny and Jane. 
Johnson didn't live there, but appeared to spend plenty of time there. Believing that Fenny and his friends were part of a gang only fueled Jane's fear of him. As stated by the prosecution, quote, while gang evidence is different than evidence of prior assaultive behavior, the evidence was relevant for the same reasons. Kelly and Jane believed that Fenny was a gang member because he claimed to be one. This belief created fear in these victims. Jane believed that if she did not cooperate with him, there would be reprisal, not just from Fenny, but from his fellow gang members, including Cornegate. This was particularly relevant to this case because if Jane or Kelly had reported Fenny's assaultive behavior, the court system and law enforcement would have no means of protecting Kelly or Jane by the use of protection orders, conditions of release, or the imposition of bail from fellow gang members that did not involve themselves in the assaultive behavior. These individuals would still continue to be permitted to continue to contact Jane. Jane testified that she did not initially report these assaults because she both feared and cared about the defendant, and because she feared reprisal from fellow gang members. End quote. On April 9th, Jane received a call for her services. Fenny stated that he didn't want her to go because he wanted to celebrate her birthday with her. Well, how sweet. Nothing says I love you like, honey, please don't go prostitute yourself today. It's your birthday. Let's spend some time together instead. But Jane knew they were short on cash, and if she didn't go out on a call and earn some money, there would be hell to pay. He had literally beat this lesson into her. So around noon or one, she took the call and went to the Midway Inn Motel on Wheaton Way to meet her client. When she got there, the client was with another prostitute and asked her to wait in her car, which she did. After a while, Fenny got impatient waiting for her. He began sending her a flurry of texts wanting to know where she was and what was taking so long. She lied and told Fenny that she had the money, but actually the client had stiffed her, so she didn't have the money she said she did. Then Jane accidentally answered a phone call from Fenny without realizing it, and he was able to overhear her arguing with the client about the money. Fenny was infuriated. He showed up at the Midway Inn motel shortly after that and told her to get in the car drive back to the dirt road house. While driving, he again pointed the gun at her and started screaming at her and hitting her in the arms and face. When they reached the house, he walked her inside and into the living room at gunpoint. A male friend of his who was there sitting on the couch was told by Fenny to stay right where he was. His friend saw the gun in Fenny's hand and saw Jane being forced up the stairs to their bedroom and did absolutely nothing to stop the assault, which was just beginning. Fenny then pointed the gun at her back as he pushed her up the stairs to their bedroom. He then ordered her to strip naked, lie down on the bed, and don't move. He removed the belt from his pants and proceeded to beat Jane with it as hard as he could, repeatedly, from her head to her ankles. He beat her so bad with his belt that she was not able to sit for days afterwards. After this whipping, he forced her to sit on the bed, pushed the gun in her mouth, and told her she was going to die. Fenny shouts 
and angrily insists that it is her fault he has to do these things to her. If she hadn't lied to him, then he would not have had to beat her or threaten to kill her. Before she had time to recover from the beating with the belt and having a gun shoved into her mouth, accompanied by death threats, he threatened her with a knife. He had her raise her arm up over her head and held a knife to her armpit as he threatened to cut her. He explained to her that a person could bleed out in 30 seconds after a cut to the armpit. Next, he had her open her legs and put the knife inside the opening of her vagina. While doing this, he called her a stupid bitch and asked her why was she making him do this. Again, he put the gun in her mouth and told her to stand up. He kept screaming at her, asking why she was making him do this and continued his threats to kill her. Finally, he forced her to stand next to the bed, completely naked, while he fell asleep. She was ordered to remain standing and not move a muscle until he told her she could move. He not only assaulted her, but tortured her. Jane silently prayed that she would not die on her birthday. Fortunately, her birthday wish came true. And that will do it for part one of the True Northwest Pimp. As you can see, Fenny is one mean dude. I can't wait to bring you part two, the conclusion of the True Northwest Pimp. Thank you for joining me here on Crime Happens. I hope to see you back here soon. 